Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. What is it? Uh, Dr. Wolfenstein? I'm here for the job interview to be your new lab assistant. Wolfenstein. Yeah, when I hired a headhunting firm, I totally misunderstood what they do. Here's my resume. Never mind that crap. What's your name? Dr. Pants. Yeah, well, you'd have to change it to Igor or Lipitor or Tylenol or something. Are you all right with that? I guess so. What was your previous position? I was crazy Dr. McPants, uncrowned lord of Castle Trouser Muffin. Seriously? You were that crazy Dr. McPants? The guy who made Max and the Maneater? The the blood-gargling giant who could control the weather with his thoughts? That was one of mine. You were awesome! You were a great mad scientist. What are you doing applying for this crap position where I kick you and shout at you and inject you with untested compounds? Uh, I got shut down by the EPA for operating a death ray while paranoid. Yeah, but... Did you do the thing where you shrink the EPA agents down to the size of little plastic men and then make them fight with rats? Because that's what I always do. Well, I also went heavy into derivatives and got hit really hard when the markets went south. Wall Street. And they say we're the sociopathic arch fiends with no regard for humanity. I hear you. Uh, Look, I really need this job, but I draw the line at being a human guinea pig. You heard about my human guinea pigs. I'm all done with that experiment, though. I've got... Hundreds of them in cages down on a lower level. They have human faces and rodent bodies. I don't really know what to do with them all. Maybe a slow cooker. Brine them first. That's a great idea. Would you be willing to help me test my new device? It's called Operation Pig Meat. You stand between those two Tesla coils and you turn into ham for three hours. Uh, What's the point? I have no idea, but people buy all kinds of crap on QVC. I invented that Nutri-Ninja blender, and they can't keep them in stock. Mm, I guess I could turn into a ham for three hours, but aren't there pretty strict rules about experimenting on humans? Ah! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you almost had me going there. Let's listen to a show about suckers who really do believe in rules. And now he volunteered to test spanks for old men, Colin McEnroe. I did. That's true. So, and the reality is, everything, all kinds of things that you use or experience or contribute to your well-being, are made possible because somebody tested them. Even not to get too graphic about it, but even for those of you who are male and have prostates, your digital rectal exam, uh, there was, believe it or not, uh, a human guinea pig. There are there are lots of them who, at medical schools, basically allow doctors to train. On doing that. So uh, all kinds of things require testing. And sooner or later, if they're going to be used on human beings, they get tested on human beings. So we're going to spend quite a bit of time talking about that today, uh, about the circumstances under which that happens and how those circumstances have changed. But we want to begin with kind of maybe even the impulse to do things like that. What makes somebody, I mean, apart from being paid, which is increasingly the case, uh, what makes somebody willing to do something, maybe risk uh, his or her own personal safety. I mean, maybe the most uh, obvious example from my lifetime is Jonas Salk, who tested his polio vaccine on his family and himself uh, before he made it public. He also 
famously refused a patent. He said, would you have a patent on the sun? Um, so what makes you that kind of person? And one reason I want to talk about this in particular is just as we began discussing last December or maybe late November the possibility of doing a human guinea pig show, I happened to be out at the TED Medical Conference uh, in Palm Springs, and there's uh, Larissa McFarker, one of my favorite uh, writers at The New Yorker, uh, and she's talking, she's telling a story that is there to illustrate a slightly different point, but she's telling the story of a human guinea pig, and I'm thinking, well... That's Kiss Man. So uh, Larissa McFarker, who is the author of Strangers Drowning, Impossible Idealism, Drastic Choices, and the Urge to Help, is joining us right now uh, from the studios of the Radio Foundation in New York. Good afternoon, Larissa. Good afternoon, Colin. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm going to have you tell two stories that are from this book uh, today. They're both uh, in, in their way germane to our topic. But the first one uh, is, in fact, uh, about a man who uh, founded a leper colony and, and did a little bit more than that. But the story that you told uh, at the TED conference was really fascinating. It's a story of a guy who maybe wasn't the most likely person to give over his life to, to lepers. So tell us about uh, Baba Amte, if I'm saying it correctly. Yeah, Baba Amte, um, I, th I think what you're thinking of, why he seems unlikely, is that he was born into a very aristocratic family. He was a kind of young princeling. He was raised in the lap of luxury. Um, and he was also a very macho guy. He was always fighting. He was very brave. And this was sort of the center of his self-image. Um, but one day, he was walking along the road in the rain, and he sees a leper lying there. And he's in the last stages of the disease. His flesh is decayed. It's crawling with maggots. And Baba was horrified by this sight, and he was afraid of catching the disease. So he ran away. And then he realized that he had run in cowardice. He had run out of fear, and he couldn't tolerate this thought. So he forced himself to go back. And there wasn't that much he could do for this particular man. He was near death. But he covered him with a blanket to protect him from the rain. And then he decided that uh, the only way he could really restore his sense of himself as a brave man was to steer directly into this fear of leprosy. And he decided to make it his life's work. And here's where the human guinea pig aspect comes in. He, logically enough, he had trained as a lawyer, so he knew he needed some medical knowledge. He enrolled in the School of Tropical Medicine. And while he was there, he discovered that one of the reasons there was as yet no cure for leprosy was that it seemed to be impossible to transmit the disease to animals for the purpose of experiments. Leprosy is a very unusual disease in that way. And he thought about this for a day and then offered himself as a human experimental subject. And uh, someone injected him with the leprosy bacillus, um, but he did not catch the disease. We now know that it's very, very difficult to catch leprosy. It was It's something like 99% of humans are immune to it, but they did not know that then, and there was no cure. And as you know, this is a terrible disease, so this was an extraordinarily brave thing for him to do. And after he um, after he uh, left the school, there was, there was a cure found, actually, um, the drug Dapsone, the first generation of cures. But the problem was is that then, as now, in, in India, many, many people are too poor to go to a doctor. Or if they do manage to get to a doctor, they don't until it is very far along and they're really desperate. And the symptoms of leprosy were so unmistakable and so terrifying to people that leprosy patients had pretty much many of the same problems they'd had before there was a cure. They were thrown out of their families, thrown out of their villages, sometimes burned alive. And so there was still a need for a leprosy colony, and Baba Amte decided to found one. And 
he moved out. He was given a tract of land by the state, and he moved out there with his wife and their two baby sons, four dogs to protect them from wild animals, because this really was wilderness, and six uh, leprosy patients to help them build a community. And at first they were living in little shelters without even walls. And one by one, every single one of their dogs was carried off and eaten by a panther. And you know, I went to this uh, this leprosy colony um, a few years ago, and it's an incredible community. It's got several thousand people living there. Um, it's the kind of place where you live your whole life. It's not just a refuge for the desperate. There are schools there. There are colleges. There are jobs. It's a beautiful place. But this is um, this is the kind of thing uh, that Baba was prepared to do, and the kind of pe thing that other people that I wrote about in my book are prepared to do uh, in terms of sacrificing themselves and preparedness to sacrifice family. You know, he, as I said, he brought his two baby sons um, with him, and they were not carried off and eaten by panthers as the dogs were, but they might have been. And they didn't catch leprosy, but they might have done. And that's, that's the, the level of risk he was prepared to take, um, just as he was prepared to take the risk of himself catching leprosy when he was injected. And that's the kind of thing that makes people uncomfortable mm -hmm. with the kind of very extreme do-gooders that I write about in my book, Strangers Drowning. Right. And this is sort of one of these uh, giant life mysteries. I mean, all of us have altruistic impulses, or most of us do anyway, but a lot of those altruistic impulses, they have limits, they have ceilings on them, and they, they have boundaries, too, and we're probably more likely uh, to exhibit them if we can connect them to our own lives somehow. I mean, I got much more militant about uh, doing something uh, about ALS research when I knew somebody who had ALS, mm -hmm. you know, and, and what we're what you're looking at here is somebody who doesn't really have that connection, who has basically decided. And as you say, he's putting his own family at risk. The mm -hmm. people closest to him are now, you know, enduring considerable risks to do this. So this person is kind of making this almost biblical decision that, you know, that, that the people who are closest to me and the people who are total strangers deserve the same kind of care and love and attention and risk and sacrifice. Um, and that's a pretty radical decision to make. I don't did you did you figure out, is there a common thread? Is there something that makes that kind of person that kind of person? Well, in terms of beliefs, I think you put your finger on it exactly. These are people who believe that everyone else is as important as they are and everyone else Everyone else's children and families are just as important as their children and families. And, you know, many of us believe that intellectually, but very, very few people are willing to actually follow through on that belief in their daily lives. And I think, you know, on the one hand, people, many people believe that all humans are equally important and they know that other humans value their families as much as you value your own family. But... That where there's disagreement is what should follow from that. Ought you to, um, even at your own family's expense, at the expense of your loved ones, uh, go to work for strangers? And I think, you know, many people feel is, feel that you should take care of your own first, uh, your own family, and then your community, perhaps. And then maybe if there's something left over, you can you can give to strangers, you can work to strangers. But it's not right to sacrifice 
too much. Um, there's a there's a philosopher that I love, uh, the late Bernard Williams, the British philosopher, who had a thought experiment about this. He said, imagine a man standing on a beach, and uh, his wife is drowning over on this side, and two strangers are drowning on the other side. And the man asks himself, is it morally permissible for me to save my one wife rather than the two strangers? Now, this man, uh, Bernard Williams said, is having one thought too many. You know, he should not be wondering, pondering whether it's morally permissible to save his wife. He should just save his wife. And if he doesn't, there's something wrong with him. Now, I think many people would agree with that, um, that it's it, there's something wrong with a love that does not wipe out all other claims in a situation like that. But, you know, he he. It may seem that he's obviously right about that, but but think about another situation where it's not just two strangers, but it's 10 strangers or 100 strangers or 1,000 strangers. You know, at a certain point, almost everyone will start to feel guilty about the claims of the strangers rather than their one um, loved one, and I think they should. And the question is, where do you draw the line? What's your number? And the people I wrote about in my book, people like Baba Amte, have a lower number than other people. They think, you know, my my sons, much as I adore them, are not more precious than other people's sons because those other people adore their sons just as much. Right. You know, there's a group of people, I don't think I had time to tell you about this uh, out in Palm Springs, and you may have already known it anyway. One group of people to whom that happens uh, in a way that's rather out of their control, but rather consistently are, pe- consistently are people who've had positive near-death experiences. In other words, mm-hmm. the, their, their, their vital functions cease, they see the white light, they go there, they experience this you know, being bathed in eternal and perfect divine love. They come back, and a lot of them have a lot of readjustment disorders because they feel exactly that way, that they've got their kids in the back of their car and their wife in the front seat and they're on their way to the beach and it's a hot day and there's a group of total strangers broken down by the road and they just have to stop. They say, oh no, you know, we're going to stop and we're going to take these people wherever they need to go or, you know, help them because they're just as important to me as they are to you. And that's a very difficult way to live uh, day in and day out. It is. I mean, a lot of my book was about the difficulties that um, an extraordinarily altruistic person has in living with a family and with friends. I mean, someone who has uh, very strong altruistic beliefs finds it hard to be friends with people who don't share those beliefs because the friends feel rebuked. They feel judged. You know, if the the friend can't just say, well, hey, let's go out and have a beer after work because uh, the altruistic person is not going to have a beer. They're going to continue working. Or even if they don't continue working, they're not going to spend the money on the beer. They're going to give it to somebody who needs it more. And you might admire that position intellectually, but it's very difficult to live with someone like that. And uh, the people I wrote about, um, I chose people who had made a success of their lives, and an enormous part of that was finding partners, um, spouses, who believed the same things. And so they build, built lives together uh, based on their shared belief. But, you know, you can't, you can't uh, live with somebody who does not share that belief for long. 
We're talking right now to Larissa, Larissa McFarker. You've probably read her work in The New Yorker. Uh, she's the author of Strangers Drowning, Impossible Idealism, Drastic Choices, and The Urge to Help. You just heard where the title of that book comes from, from the Bernard Williams Thought Experiment. All right, let's tell a different story. Uh, this is uh, not a story of somebody who injected himself with leprosy or had himself injected with uh, a leprosy pathogen. This is somebody who did something that's a little bit more common. It's been very much in the news here in Connecticut because the speaker, uh, excuse me, the president pro tem, of the state Senate uh, needed a kidney and a judge uh, came forward and offered his kidney. They were a match and uh, and there's a very happy ending, at least it, so it appears. Um, so you looked at a man like Paul, uh, a name, man named Paul Wagner. Tell us about Paul Wagner. He, um, Paul Wagner was uh, in many respects an ordinary person. Um, he was more uh, morally driven than the average person, but he worked in a um, uh, air conditioner company in Philadelphia and uh, for most of the time just went about his business. And then uh, one day he was reading in the newspaper about an organization that matched people who wanted to give a kidney for free, you know, just as as a volunteer, wanted to give a kidney to a stranger to save that stranger's life. And this really appealed to him. And so he went on the organization's website and the organization, it was kind of like a... a, a, a dating website for for kidney patients and they, you could pick you could scroll through photographs of various patients in need and pick the person you wanted to donate to and he picked a woman who happened to be um, an opera singer who lived not that far from him in town and he he donated his kidney to her it turned out they were a match and um, this the astonishing thing about this story I found it uh, just unqualifiedly admirable what he did. Um, and I also found it, I have not, I should say, donated one of my kidneys, but I found it com very easy to understand why he might want to do this. Because if you are the kind of person who wants to help others, so much of the time, helping is very difficult to do. And that's something we've become, I think, uh, more and more aware of uh, in the past few decades, either interpersonal helping or helping on a grand scale by government, uh, governmental uh, law or giant aid agencies abroad. Helping often uh, doesn't work or it actually goes wrong and backfires. But here is a situation where helping is going to work. Sometimes kidney transplants uh, don't don't take, but most of the time these days they do. So here you have a situation where you can go into the hospital, subsequently endure a few few weeks of discomfort, and know that you've saved someone's life. That's an extraordinary thing, and that's how Paul felt. But he was amazed to discover, and I was amazed when I talked to him, that very few other people understood this. Uh, his partner, Aaron, um, thought he was nuts and really did not, not want him to do this. Um, and I, other donors I talked to felt, had the same experience. Their friends thought they were crazy. Their family members often um, were quite resentful. They said, what are you doing? What if one of us gets sick and needs a kidney and you've already given yours away? That's not right. You should save yourself for your family. And then the doctors. Now, here are a group of people who have dedicated their lives to helping sick kidney patients, but they thought also um, that Paul was very weird. And um, volunteer donors, something like 50% of the transplant programs in this country won't even consider a person, an altruistic donor who wants to give a kidney to a stranger. 
because it just doesn't make sense to them. It feels like it's violating the Hippocratic Oath to harm someone for no benefit to themselves. They don't, of course, think of the enormous psychological benefit of having saved someone's life. Um, and so you have to undergo a pretty rigorous psychological examination um, before you're allowed to donate to a stranger in order to make sure uh, that you're not nuts. Um, and I, I found this very surprising that we are so uh, unused to altruism that it seems completely bizarre and incomprehensible that someone should want to do what Paul did. What Paul did reminds me of a different thought experiment. It's sort of the biomedical version of the uh, John Rawls uh, experiment where he says, pick a system of government for yourself to live under, but you won't know where in the socioeconomic spectrum or the other aspects of, uh, of benefit uh, you'll fall. You don't know what kind of person you'll be without knowing that, what system of government you want to live under. And this is, Paul's kind of the same thing. What kind of biomedical system do you want to live under? What kind of uh, biomedical ethical system do you want to live under, not knowing whether you're going to need a kidney or have a kidney to give. I mean, I, I'm sure what Paul would say is, well, so yeah, if my remaining kidney failed, I've already voted for a system where you get another kidney from somebody. So so I, I've already elected a system under which I could conceivably benefit somewhere down the line. Does that make any sense? It absolutely does. And in fact, um, that is the case. Um, if you donate a kidney, um, you go to the top of the kidney transplant list should you need one yourself. But the fact is that if, you, um, if your kidneys uh, experience kidney failure, both of them are going to fail. So it's not like you've given away your spare. The only way, the only uh, situation in which you have given away your spare is if you either have a, a physical incident, like you bash into something on the side of your remaining kidney, or if you have kidney cancer, which can affect just one kidney. But for ordinary kidney disease, it's, it's both of them or neither. So it's not like you've harmed yourself in that way. And um, when you have donated a, a kidney, your remaining kidney um, I, I'm not sure over what period of time, but fairly quickly expands to take up the function of the of the one that has been removed. So your your kidney function um, returns to normal fairly quickly, and meanwhile you've saved someone's life. So we, you know we've been talking uh, here about what are generally grouped under the rubric of, of Good Samaritans. I didn't even realize until this past Sunday that Samaritans in that story were this, in fact kind of despised group mm -hmm. of people that the the point of the story partly is that a bunch of the two other people who have much higher social standing uh, pass by this man who's been beaten and robbed and naked and, you know, uh, and, and, and in misery and don't do anything. And this Samaritan who you know, really would have been, I don't know, the person telling the story when I was listening was saying, if this story were told in modern day Israel, this this would have been a Palestinian, maybe even a Palestinian, you know, with pretty bad politics from the point of view uh, of of Israel. That's who's coming along here. That's and, right. And so, yeah, Larissa, that that's important somehow, not only in the biblical context, but in the stories that you're telling. Absolutely. I mean, because I think, you know, everyone understands helping within your community. I think the normal way to be um, altruistic is to help people uh, who are like yourself or who are, in some sense, your people. Um, you know, when I was... Um, and also, I think the normal way to be altruistic is, is to feel that you've had something thrust upon you, kind of in the way that um, having someone lying in the, in the road next to you is thrust upon you. When I was 
when I was writing this book, I was um, it was the height of the Ebola epidemic, and I was thinking about those nurses um, who were suddenly, from being ordinary nurses, thrust into the position of being heroes. And they were. I mean, they stepped up and they stayed in the hospital for, uh, you know, 24, 36-hour shifts. They risked their own lives um, from the infectious patients all around them. Um, but and no, that's a kind of altruism no one has a problem with because it's it's thrust upon you and it, it, it's it's your own community and of course um, it's admirable to help. I think the kind of ad altruism that people are more uncomfortable with is altruism that seems unforced, uh, that is that is thought up in a sort of somewhat intellectual manner. Like I owe it to humankind to do the following things, um, and that is the kind of person that I was writing about. And I, it's, it's interesting. I learned that, um, especially there was one couple I wrote about who gave away um, almost all of their money. And they did it in a very calculating fashion to them, uh, a rational fashion. They thought, we'll do research and we will find the best charity to donate to so as to have the maximal impact. And that seemed uh, perfectly sensible to me. But to many people, that seemed too calculating, too rational. Uh, they felt that somehow giving or helping ought to be more emotional. You should give to the charity that is connected with people you know, like like you uh, became invested in the ALS uh, work because you knew someone who had the disease. That That is something uh, that most people can relate to. And I came to realize that that kind of rational, calculated planning of a life uh, is repellent to people even if it's altruistic, there's something about rationalism that uh, turns people off to whatever ends it's put. It's too cold. It's too. It's it's not spontaneous enough. So, Larissa McFarker, I want to uh, go back to the organ donation thing because I mean, the other way of looking at this is it. It, it doesn't work well enough. There aren't enough of us uh, mm -hmm. like Paul. So there aren't enough. You know, I mean, I donate blood once in a while, but that's really easy. I get, I get the blood back right away. There aren't enough people who think, all right, yeah, I got two kidneys. You can have one. Um, so one way of dealing with this would be simply to make it financially attractive, create an incentive. We're going to be talking later in the show about people who, who often get, you know, relatively large sums of money for being in drug trials and stuff like that. W what's your take, having looked long and hard, Part of this at the notion of making it worth something you know I'm for it and but this is an interesting issue because uh, it uh, many people it, it's it's not an obvious political issue it, it brings together strange bedfellows and it's it's something that that many people feel very strongly about I mean just to give you the other side reasons that you would not want to um, to compensate people for giving a kidney uh, might be for instance it would be likely to be on the whole people who have very few resources who would do that for money. And people worry that it would lead to a, a grotesque kind of exploitation, uh, that it might, um, one's kidneys might even be calculated in, as an asset and uh, uh, held against you in considerations of welfare, let's say. Uh, you know, you, you, you would. You hate to imagine a government official saying, "Well, why do you need public assistance? You've already, you still got two kidneys. Sell a kidney, and then we'll talk." I mean, you can imagine the horror of that situation. On the other hand, um, there are many people who are driven to do things that are far more dangerous than giving kidneys, than giving uh, donating a kidney. 
um, for the sake of money. And that doesn't strike us as um, strange. Uh, as, as you know, the military uh, is uh, populated by many people who are driven to that service, not just for reasons of patriotism and service, but also because that's um, they need the money. That's the job they can get. And other jobs like mining, which are incredibly dangerous, just like going into the military, far more dangerous than giving a kidney, again, are resorted to uh, by people who might want to avoid the danger but are driven to it for financial reasons. Um, and it's, it's, it's also complicated because the people on the kidney waiting list, many of whom sat, tragically will die before uh, receiving a transplant because there are so few, um, many of them are themselves in poor communities um, because kidney disease is correlated with diabetes and diabetes um, hits low-income people more often. So it's not a simple tale of uh, wealthy people profiting from the organs of the poor, um, though there certainly has been some of that in the illegal uh, organ trade in other countries. So I think it's a complicated issue. Um, Certainly, I don't think there should be um, an open market in organs so that uh, a wealthy uh, person who needed a transplant would be able to outbid uh, a person of fewer funds. Um, it would be much more like a, um, a public uh, an amount that was determined by by uh, by law and was administered. Um, by the government. But, um, you know, we, we again, we allow people to sell other parts of their body, like um, eggs. Women can sell mm -hmm. their eggs. Yep. Um, and it's it's not clear to me why we draw the line at kidneys. Um, Larissa McFarger, this has been fascinating. We're going to have to go because we've got to talk to some of these people of who have engaged in those kinds of exchanges. But thank you so much. I'm so glad I went to the TED Med conference uh, and met you. Uh, Larissa McFarger, the author, author of Strangers Drowning, Impossible Idealism, Drastic Choices, and The Urge to Help. We'll be back after this break. Come on, people, let's give them a hand. Saturday night is the place to be. Everybody cut foot loose with me at the party at the leper colony. All right. Welcome back to our conversation about human guinea pigs. We just went through sort of some of the philosophical contours of this. Now we're going to uh, get down to brass tacks, talk a little bit about how this works in the modern environment, where often it is possible. And there's a was a play at Barrow Street Theater last year called The Effect by Lucy Preble uh, about this very thing, about uh, people who uh, volunteer for studies. But there are studies for which they are being paid, but often confined for long periods of time. Uh, Paul Clow is with us. He is one of those people. Uh, he is a uh, so self-styled uh, a professional lab rat. That's a term that he uses. In fact, he's the founder of Just Another Lab Rat, J-A-L-R, a website that helps other uh, people find opportunities like this. You can go on there right now. If you're here listening here in Connecticut, I can tell you that there's nothing in New Haven right now, although there is a place uh, where, in fact, they do things like that in New Haven. But you go state by state and see what's uh, available to you. Also joining us is Carl Elliott, professor in the Center for Bioethics at the University of Minnesota and and the author of White Coat, Black Hat, Adventures in the Dark Side of Medicine. So, Paul, I'm going to start with you. You're, uh, I think, in your mid-30s or so. How many studies have you been in now? Uh, yeah, um, kind of lost track probably, but it's probably about <laughs> 90 or 100 over yeah. about 12 years. 
And and most of these, I assume, are ones where you you know have to report somewhere at least periodically, or you might be confined somewhere. I mean, how invasive does it get? Uh, obviously, they're going to be drawing blood and stuff like that. Have you had more in- invasive experiences than that? Uh, no, the majority of mine are pretty uh, basic. Uh, I mean, I kind of liken it to just going to summer camp. Uh, you're just going over to a clinic for a couple of days or longer. And just having a few tests done, and then you leave at the end to make some friends, maybe. Well, I mean, the difference, of course, is that uh, with summer camp, uh, as long as I can get my parents to come pick me up, I'm free to leave with no particular penalty other than <laughs> my down payment, right? These things, once you sign up, I mean, well, I, I assume at minimum you forfeit whatever money you were going to get if you leave. Um, that is correct. You are welcome to leave at any time. Uh, however, yes, you would only be paid up to that point. And uh, they do want to make sure if you do want to leave that you are medically sound. So they may also ask you to follow up uh, after you leave. Um, and uh, But I would also assume, you know, I mean, you're talking about the experimenters in you. There's maybe a third piece of that triangle, and it would be the other people there. In other words, if I signed up for a study and you signed up for a study and a few other people signed up for a study and a lot of people started to leave, the whole study could collapse. And even if I wasn't the one who wanted to leave, uh, I might feel as though my participation in this was being compromised. Do you ever get pressure or see pressure applied to your fellow uh, participants? I, I don't want to call them lab rats, but your fellow participants uh, in situations like that? I have not personally experienced that. Um, I have seen petitions go around. That's one of the, uh, what to say, things the clinics don't like. Um, you do find people who may try to influence other people. Maybe they feel like the study's not being paid enough, uh, perhaps. But I haven't, in my experience, if there's a serious problem with the actual study as far as being medically sound, mm-hmm. the clinic would be the one to pull the plug mm-hmm. and uh, cancel the study. So I'd like to say I have, no, I have great faith that that would happen before uh, – my peeps would uh, try to stop it themselves. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to go over to Carl Elliott. Uh, Paul says he has great faith. Um, Carl, I've read enough of your work to know that you don't necessarily have a great uh, faith that uh, the oversight uh, of these studies is going to be adequate, that the emphasis on patient care uh, is going to be paramount. Um, tell us what you think the general state of human experimentation is right now. Well, I have a I have several problems with the way that that uh, things are done now. Um, one of which, the one that you alluded to, is the sort of porous oversight system. I mean, the, the problem now is that the FDA only inspects about 1% of clinical trial sites, which means that 99% are never inspected by the FDA. And so the only real oversight of the studies comes from the Institutional Review Board, the ethics committee that is supposed to be approving the trials that are going on there, most of the members of which will never set foot in the trial site itself. So I think it's very difficult to have a whole lot of confidence that that um, you're going to be kept safe in these trials. Part of the, the larger problem with that, again, is it's very difficult to find out which trials are going to be safe and which ones are not. 
because there's no transparency in the system. There's nobody actually keeping track of how many people uh, are killed or injured or get some kind of serious injury by volunteering for these trials. So there's no way to figure out if you're taking a big risk or you're taking a small risk. Now, I think, you know, if you talk to people like Paul or, um, you know, a number of the other uh, uh, research subjects who who have been involved in a lot of trials, you'll find that most of them say that, you know, their experiences are generally pretty good. The problem, I think, is trying to figure out which experiences are going to be pretty good and which ones could be disastrous. And right now, even if you're really knowledgeable about this stuff, and I don't think the vast majority of research subjects are, but even if you are, it's impossible to get that information. Well, I think also, Paul's obviously pretty savvy. Uh, he's savvy enough to, uh, you know, sort of be able to maybe pick out some of the good players from the bad players or know certain reputations. But as you've pointed out, a lot of these studies are performed on, say, recent immigrants who may have language barriers or just a complete lack of familiarity with, with any of this stuff. Uh, Carl, tell us more about that. Well, I mean, I think probably the the incident you're, that you're talking about is the... Um, SFBC uh, disaster in Miami in 2005. This was uh, a clinical trial site that was the largest study site on the continent. I think it had about 700 beds and was enormously successful. It had been voted one of the best small businesses in America. A team of investigative reporters from Bloomberg Markets went down there and found out that the trial site was actually in a converted motel that was crumbling apart, that had multiple fire and safety violations, and that the business model was recruiting undocumented immigrants and paying them to test the safety of new drugs. Now, that uh, trial site has since been torn down by the county, and uh, the, the management has picked up and moved elsewhere. But you have to ask yourself, how is it possible? I think that I think it's been in business for about ten years. How is it possible for a contract research organization to operate out of a crumbling motel for ten years without anybody noticing? Right, and so that's the striking thing to me. Yeah. So, and this is we should say for the benefit of the listeners, this is one of the moves that's happened in the world of research. That you know, in the past, a lot of the research happened under the auspices of, say, Yale University or some you know, or some prestigious research institution that probably wouldn't want to compromise its reputation. Although, Carl, reading some of your writing, it seems as though some pretty impressive universities have conducted some pretty uh, uh, dicey or questionable uh, activities, including the one that you personally in- inhabit. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's true. They used immigrants too, right? They used Hmong uh, uh, immigrants at one point. I think uh, I read a piece by you referencing that. So I, let's go back to Paul for a second. Paul, you feel as like as though you know well enough so that probably you're not walking into some kind of horror show. What makes you think that you do know that, though? <laughs> well, okay, yeah, that whole uh, that was uh, actually like right at the beginning of when I started doing studies. So I actually never even got a chance to go try the place, mm. which I guess I'm glad I did. But what is that? Okay. Um, I just, it's just any other business you do business with. Um, you just have that gut feeling, uh, you know, 
I mean, you, like I say, when you go into a clinic, you see what's going on mm-hmm. right there. Um, you can, and in general, you're going to be talking with other people and networking. And again, I do have a forum on my uh, website that allows people to share their experiences with the uh, clinics. Yeah. But ultimately, it comes down to you. I mean, you have to make that decision. Uh, what's your time worth? Uh, you know. Yeah. <laughs> You know. Yeah, and your forum, your forum is kind of like the ultimate Yelp. Like, you know, did you Yelp when they drew the blood? Uh, and so you've got sort of peer reviewing going on there. But, Paul, I guess the other question that I have is what if one of these, what if you develop some kinds of symptoms? You know, what if you develop some symptoms that you suspected had something to do with one of these trials? Now, one problem is you've done a lot of trials. You might not know where the symptoms were coming from. But what kind of redress do you have if you get sick, if something goes wrong? Are you kind of out there on your own? Do you just sign waivers that sort of don't really obligate them to take good care of you if you have some symptoms that develop later? Um, well, again, I haven't personally had this issue. Uh, I mean, I've had short-term uh, side effects like rashes, body rashes. Uh, I mean, that's usually like one of the more, uh, what to say, common uh side effects right. and uh and that may happen after you leave a study and yes i've uh gone back and they were able to connect it to the uh, drug and i did receive uh i mean there really isn't much treatment for it it's just time will make it go away but uh again if i have a problem when i'm in a study they have doctors ems paramedics to uh address the problem right away and if they feel like you're Health is in jeopardy. They'll stop giving you the drug or take any other necessary. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I've only seen one person taken to a hospital in like the whole 12 years I've been there, and that was just for chest pains. You know? So they're very over cautious when I, uh, under my observation, would say. Okay, let me throw it back over to Carl for a second. I, I don't know how sanguine are you about this? I mean, you know, that's those are Paul's experiences out in the field, but. You know, it seems like an apparatus, particularly as it moves from prestigious universities to, you know, private business, basically profit making private business to test these drugs in uh, in closed settings. I don't know. I mean, how much redress does a patient have, particularly if he or she thinks, yeah, maybe I did get sick from that thing? The United States is the only developed country in the world that doesn't guarantee to pay the medical bills of people who were injured in clinical trials. We're a real outlier. Every bioethics commission that has looked at this issue since the 1970s has said, essentially, this is a disgrace. These people are volunteering to test the safety of drugs for the benefit of the rest of us. The very least we can do is guarantee that we will take care of their medical bills if they're injured. Yet the vast majority of uh, trials don't do that. And that's not just uh, private trial sites. That's universities as well. There's not a single university in the United States that will guarantee payment for pain and suffering and loss of income as a result of uh, injury in a clinical trial. Mm -hmm. To me, this is the very first thing that has to be fixed if you want to uh, start trying to figure out how how to make the system fair. You have to guarantee that you're going to take care of the medical bills of people who are injured in trials. 
Makes sense to me. Uh, Carl Elliott, that's all we have time for right now. Professor in the Center for Bioethics at the University of Minnesota, the author of White Coat, Black Hat, Adventures in the Dark Side of Medicine. Also, thanks to Paul Clow, professional lab rat by his own terminology and founder of Just Another Lab Rat, J-A-L-R. That's a website that helps other lab rats find trials uh, to go into. All right, we're going to take a break. We'll have one more uh, leg of this conversation to go. want to be a human guinea pig sitting around never going outside taking some mind-altering substance and just lying there and feeling its effects wait a minute that was my early 20s today's show was produced by betsy kaplan and me kyone wolf our interns were nipsey and tipsy fisher the part of bill curry was played by boris karloff all of our episodes are waiting for you at wnpr.org slash colin on tomorrow's show our post-press conference blockbuster with john cleese lowell weicker and a cast of thousands and now, back to Colin. It's true. We really are having John Cleese, John Cleese and Lil Wecker on to respond um, tomorrow after uh, President-elect's uh, press conference. All right. Well, back to the subject of human guinea pigs. Um, they are, by the way, they're in our culture. I mentioned The Effect, the play by Liz Preble. Uh, they're there in the podcast, The Homecoming, the Eli Horowitz uh, podcast about uh, drug tests on soldiers. Um, but they're there in real life, too. And in the history of this, the history of, of biomedicine, the history of scientific advancement is the history of people who tested their own ideas, tested their own work, or were engaged in experimentation that was incredibly risky to them. So if something has a name that's a person's name, chances are that person either died or was very badly harmed in the making of it, uh, whether it's Curie, units of radiation, or the Bunsen burner, or pick something else. Uh, and as I say, Jonas Salk injected himself and his family uh, with the polio vaccine before pretty much anybody else. That one came out okay. Uh, we hope it comes out okay also for Liz Parrish. She's our next guest, uh, CEO and founder of BioViva USA. Uh, so far it has. And if Liz Parrish's work is successful, you're all going to be as grateful to her as you are to Jonas Salk. So Liz Parrish, first of all, tell us uh, what, what actually it is that uh, your company is testing. Yeah, so we are a company that's looking at treating biological aging as a disease uh, with gene therapies and cell therapies. So for my test, uh, I did a gene therapy that induces telomerase in the cells of your body, uh, thus lengthening the telomeres and creating a more infinite cell division. Again, that's healthy cell division. And then the second thing I tested was a myostatin inhibitor. And this is actually through safety and efficacy in the U.S. It's another gene therapy, and it increases your muscle mass. So you went to, I think, Columbia to have the, um, uh, the test uh, in, or the clinical trial administered to you? Yeah, correct. And so now it's in your body. First of all, I don't know, do you worry at night, you know, what did I do? Maybe I shouldn't have done this? Uh, no, I don't. Um, actually, we're all part of an experiment. So you, I, and everyone else, whether you take a gene therapy or not, 
And we know that that experiment is failing. We're dying of the diseases of aging. So things like dementia and heart disease and cancer will catch up with you without intervention. And these uh, therapies are designed to keep that from happening. Now, they need a lot of work. We need to do a lot of testing in humans. Uh, but the end goal of these is to be used as immunizations against biological aging. And the research shows that, in fact, we can do that. As I said, we will be incredibly grateful uh, if this uh, turns out to be true and uh, your, your praises will be sung. And I know some of this is also your frustration with the slowness of bringing things from research to usability. You feel as though, if anything, we're overcautious in a way that works to the detriment of people who need therapies and cures. Uh, yeah, absolutely. We're very risk adverse. And again, we're dying being risk adverse. So people wait for a treatment and they die waiting for a treatment. We do not treat them for fear that they may die a day sooner. And I think that that is a big mistake. So my son was diagnosed with diabetes type 1. I ended up in Children's Hospital. There were a lot of children dying around me. I was asking what sort of interventions were available. Were, you know, could we use stem cells? Could we do biobanking? Were there genetic cures? And they were not being used at that time. Um, it, these kids had no option, and it was as if they were better off dying of the diseases that they had. And so I went on a great mission, and I found uh, longevity research. And actually, these type of treatments treat children as well. I was actually looking for cures for kids. I knew nothing about longevity. And, um, you know, this, this was the, the biggest uh, promise that we've had. We've reversed biological aging in animals a couple times. Uh, we have reversed aging in human cells. And now we're just waiting to do it in a human body. Um, we're almost out of time, and I apologize for that. This is a much longer conversation. Was there anybody trying to stop you from injecting or having yourself injected with uh, these therapies? Uh, was there either a governmental mechanism or anything else that said, no, 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 you can't experiment on yourself like that? Well, we were very quiet about our test. Uh, we moved forward quite quickly. Uh, no one stood in the way because they didn't know that we were going to do it, and I really think that they need not to. The, the criticism that we got uh, were definitely some uh, criticism from researchers, and, and those researchers are very integral, and most of them are on our side. Um, whenever people are critics of, of things that are happening in science, you have to look at where their money comes from, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, we were trying to advance the science, and we certainly uh, want to put more money in research, but we think that this risk aversion is just holding things back uh, too long. We need to move forward. We need to get into safety trials and these most promising therapies and move forward uh, to medical cures. Liz Parrish, if it all works, uh, there will be statues of you on university campuses. Liz Parrish is the founder uh, and CEO of BioViva USA. Her uh, concept, her product is uh, coursing through her body right now, and it may be coursing through your body someday if it works. Thanks very much to Betsy Kaplan for producing today's show and Kion Wolf for running the board. So, Kayon, how are you coping with being an actual human guinea pig? You want to stay that way? You know, it's not that bad. I have my own cage. Uh, people bring me food all the time, and the cedar bedding smells amazing. Yeah, too bad guinea pigs only live four to eight years, though. That's the exact length of a Trump presidency. Yeah, I'm just going to stay this way. <laughs> 